Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 21st, 2013, and my guest is Doug Lamov, a managing director of Uncommon Schools, a chain of charter schools in the Northeast. Before that, he founded a charter school in Boston. He is the author of Teach Like a Champion and Practice Perfect. Doug, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, in a recent talk you gave, you tell the origins of your book, Teach Like a Champion. You were looking at New York State test scores, and there's a negative relationship between school performance and how many of its students come from homes below the poverty level. But you noticed something interesting beyond that negative correlation. Tell us what you noticed and what you decided to do about it. Sure. Well, uh, you know, like you said, at, at first, uh, there's a lot of hand-wringing uh, because you can see uh, that the zip code that you're born to often determines the, you know, the scholastic outcome school that you go to. While we were wringing our hands, someone pointed out, you know, for any level of poverty, even 100% of kids in a school living in poverty, there are always schools that defy expectations. There are always teachers who defy expectations. Uh, and despite all the difficulties and challenges and ravages of poverty, there are people who beat the odds. And so what we realized is we can worry about the we can, we can worry about the problem or we can worry about the solution. And so uh you know it struck us that we could be out there looking for those teachers who are in the upper right-hand corner of the graph, people who have you know 95 100% of their kids living in poverty uh and who still you know achieve incredible outcomes for their students. And one of the interesting things about it is that you know if this were any other sector other than education or Silicon Valley and we had figured out how to put you know, immense amounts of additional memory on a chip for the, for the same amount of size, uh, people would be engaged in industrial espionage trying to sneak into one another, trying to sneak into chip fabrication plants to figure out what it was that made uh, one plant's results so incredible. But in education, we had just hadn't, that wasn't part of the culture, that wasn't something that we did. And so I just went out and started watching people when I could identify people who were in the upper right-hand corner. And what, what, hat, outliers. what hat were you and wearing? Well, at the time, I was uh, I was wearing several hats. I was, I was I was working as a consultant for a group of schools that were trying to get better, uh, and I was in the planning stages of of working for uncommon schools. And I just left business school, where sort of thinking data wise, like this was common. And so, you know, it was fascinating. I went to some of these classrooms, and as soon as I went to two or three of them, I, I had my second aha, which is I'm not coming back without my video camera because <laughs> what incredible teachers do in their classrooms is so remarkable and breathtaking that I just felt like, you know, no one's going to believe this or really be able to understand what this teacher did unless I show it to him. And we'll put up some links to some of those videos are online. And you, if you get the book, you'll, it comes with a, a DVD that has lots of examples of great teachers doing, doing these techniques. But after you g- gathered these techniques and you held some workshops, you were surprised at one, how fabulously appreciative the teachers were of the workshops and how Six months later, very little happened for them that was different. So talk about why your initial attempt to implement some of these techniques that you observed failed. Yeah, yeah. we talk about this a lot. We call it the, we have a name for it. We call it the get it, do it gap. Uh, you know, uh, and this exists with almost any complex endeavor, but I think we often fail to recognize that teaching is a performance profession and that you do it live in front of, 30, uh, an audience of 30 or so four times a day, you know, and sometimes it's a very skeptical audience of 30. Uh, and so having a great lesson on Tuesday guarantees you nothing about Wednesday's lesson you have to teach it all over again. And if you're crashing on Wednesday and you ask a question and all the kids look at you funny or if they won't sit down when you ask them to, you can't hit pause like you can if you're, you know, a lawyer, say, and call up some other lawyer and say, what does this Latin phrase mean? And you can't say, how do I get them to sit down? You know, you're live. And so what we realized was the way that people in professions that acknowledged that they worked live, that they were performers prepared, was by practice and by doing things over and over again before they went into the game. And that a tennis player or a surgeon or a musician would never dare to get up on stage or walk on center court 
without having hit, you know, thousands of backhands or done thousands of scales before they walked in the room. And so this is the genesis of the book Practice Perfect, which is how do you, how do you prepare for complex tasks through practice? Uh, and we sort of outlined a vision for how you do that. And it's a little bit ironic because if you, you know, if I asked a room of a hundred typical ex- educators from around America, you know, how often do you practice what you do in the classroom before you walk into the door, before you walk into the doors and play the game, they would look at me funny. But, you know, since having this realization, we've worked, we've been working practice into our workshops and into our schools and the results have been pretty incredible. Well, most of us who lecture at the university level, teach at the university level, we, we practice on the job. Uh, if we're lucky, after a decade right. or so of teaching, we, we've learned some things. But I think most teachers at the university level, and tragically, most teachers at the high school level, where they're not so much mm-hmm. lecturing, they're interacting, you get into a rut. You get into a particular set of habits that you do groove, but they're not the good habits. They're the not-so-good habits sometimes. And there's a lot of learning that gets left left behind as a result. You know, I think it's very true, and, and it reminds me of a story, actually, of, of, uh, of two teachers in one of our schools. Uh, one of them was a teacher named Maggie, and she was a reading teacher. She was actually quite a good reading teacher, but she was struggling with discussions. And what would happen is she would start discussing a book. And when she got, uh, sometimes kids will give you an answer that is totally unexpected, and uh, for want of a better term for it, totally wrong. <laughs> and when she would get an answer like that, she didn't really know how to handle it. Right, you don't want to say, boy, that's to, a stupid answer. Right. She was surprised. And so she, you know, so she would step in with uh, a comment that she wasn't happy with that would basically shut down the discussion. Let's say they're discussing Diary of Anne Frank and she would say, no, Anne is afraid because she thinks the person knocking at the door is the SS and they're there to take her away. Or, you know, is, in, is, you know, uh, is the Nazis and they're there to take her away. And so... This would have the result of clarifying <laughs> uh, the mistake that students, but it would, it would totally kill the discussion. And she was very aware that she was doing this, but she couldn't fix it. In the same way that you said, you know, you noted, like college professors and teachers, they're often aware of your habits, but they're hard to fix. So she went to her principal with it, and he said, you know, Nikki, who's another teacher in the school, is really good at this part of discussion. Why don't you check in with her and see if you guys can do some practice together? And what Nikki, they got together, and what Nikki suggested was. Let's get together for 10 minutes, three times a week. And you read me questions from your lesson plan that you're going to ask that day. And I'll pretend to be a student and I will give you a totally unexpected wrong answer. And you can just practice reacting to it and responding to it. And so they would do this. And then Maggie, Maggie would harass, ask her questions of Nikki. Then Nikki would ask her questions back of Maggie. So they both played both, both roles and they kind of laughed about it and they reflected on the answers. But after three or four weeks, Maggie was so comfortable responding to strange, you know, to strange answers that, you know, her classroom was completely transformed. And the most interesting part of the transformation was that she no longer really had to think about, you know, how she was going to react to a strange wrong answer because she could do it intuitively because she'd done it so many times and her mind could be on the book or on the next question that she was going to ask. And so not only did she get better at it, but she freed up cognitive you know, processing capacity to worry about other things. Um, and, that, and that kind of leads me to, I think it's a really fascinating story. One, because it's something you wouldn't necessarily think that would respond to practice. But two, it also suggests that one of the ways to be, be successful in teaching or in any other performance endeavor is to practice the things that you don't want to think about during the game. Yeah. Right? You think that what I should practice are the things that are most important during the game. And, and that, is, that is true. But one of the things you can also do is practice things. Once you automate something, it frees your mind to think about something else. So things like remembering not to ask yes or no questions or, you know, uh, tricks of behavior management, right? Dropping your voice an octave when you give a student a correction on their behavior or whispering the correction to them. Uh, those are all really simple things that are hard to remember to do in the game. But if you practice them a few dozen times beforehand, it happens without your thinking about it and your mind can be free to be thinking about the math or the history of the science. And let's talk about a couple of the techniques that you that you mentioned. And the, the book has 49 techniques for teachers, uh, and yeah. those of us who are teachers, and I know we have a lot of listeners who are teachers, uh, will find them interesting and useful. But I want to give the general listener some of the flavor of. We're not going to go through all 49, uh, but yeah, I want to good. give the general. I want to give our general listeners the flavor of what we mean by a technique, uh, yeah. because I think for a lot of people, unfortunately, even some teachers, it's like, well, you know, like. What's a technique? Oh, well, I lecture with a make sure my voice is loud enough or 
look yeah. and get eye contact is really important, but those are not really what the techniques are. So let's talk about the first one I want to ask you about is at bats. Uh, mm-hmm. What is the technique that you call at bats? And uh, it has lessons that go beyond teaching. Yeah, it's interesting. It definitely ties into the book on practice. Uh, so at bats is the the idea is that you know uh, we often ask uh, we think that the process of learning ends when students can get it right. But really to be able to do something and to be able to do something well enough that your mind can be thinking about the next more complex thing you're going to learn, you need to have done it a lot. And so, um, you know, getting one, being able to add, do one problem where you add fractions with unlike denominators, right, is not, does not mean you've mastered adding fractions with unlike denominators. You really need to be able to do 20 of them or 100 of them and do them in different permutations. And so I think one of the, the things that we realized we weren't doing in our classroom is giving students, when we got to the point where they understood how to do something, enough practice at it that they drove it into muscle memory and they knew how to do it and they knew how to do it with confidence and they'd done it over and over again and they'd seen different variations on it. And so they were able to execute. My son was a first grader. I went to, his, uh, he, I went to back to school night and his teacher said, oh, you know, I promise you I won't give, I won't, I promise I won't give them, uh, you know, problem sets in math and won't ask them to do problems over and over again. And I thought to myself, uh. <laughs> no, that's fine. Please, please do because you know, I'm doing it at, because you should know I'm doing it at home and, uh, you know, nothing could be more useful for him than to have done it over and over again. And in fact, you know, that sort of often bears out in watching my own children in math. Uh, they've come to love math, but, uh, for a couple of years, you know, they had, they had, experiences where they would do one problem right and move on to the next thing, and then a week later, they wouldn't know how to do it. Yeah, and I think the fascinating thing about math, and this happens in economics as well, you teach a concept and you think, well, now they know the concept, so now they can apply it. So I'll just give them an example that's just a little bit different. And then you show them that example, and they go, well, we've never seen that before. You're thinking, what do you mean? We've done 20 of those, but they don't – they needed to do 50 so that it was so ingrained they could see the connections, And, and, and three is certainly not enough. And you have to, and to be, to be able to step outside the calculation to think, oh, this is a problem. I know how to do this problem. This is a, you know, uh, this is a ratio problem. So I, now I, now I know how, to, you know, you have to be comfortable enough having seen enough of them to be able to make that leap. I think it's interesting though that this, this also applies outside of math in ways that probably aren't as intuitive to all of us. You know, I think one of the key skills that, uh, is behind the reading gap, uh, between students of privilege and students who aren't or an opportunity or between strong readers and weak readers of any type is vocabulary. You know, vocabulary, the strength of your vocabulary and interestingly, the depth of your vocabulary correlates very, very strongly to academic achievement, better than almost anything. And what, and, and interestingly, depth of word knowledge correlates better than breadth of word knowledge. In other words, if you really know your words and how to use them in 16 different scenarios and, and you know what words go with them and you know what nuance the words have, uh, you do better than if you know a little bit about a lot of words. And so to really master a word, you know, how many times do you need to practice a word to own it? 20, 30, you know, you, how many times do you need to use a vocabulary word to own it? 20 or 30 times. And probably in different situations and different, uh, you need to use the adverb form and then, and then the adjective form and then the noun form. And so, uh, one of the things that we realized is really powerful to do with vocabulary instruction. And I think you can do this whether you're a teacher or you're a parent is, you know, wordplay is more, is, is deeply important. And I think that for a lot, a lot of teachers and parents spend their time on vocabulary trying to arrive at the definition. What do you think the definition of mimic might be? That way you can hmm, pass a vocabulary, that way you can pass a vocabulary yeah. test, which is something that happens occasionally in life, but most of life yeah. vocabulary is useful outside the test. Yeah, well, if I can, if you just, well, if, if you'll suffer me geeking out on this a little, a little bit more, you know, if you spend your time trying to guess the definition, you have kids with imperfect knowledge trying to guess the definition. But if you give them the definition at the beginning and spend those five or ten minutes practice, you know, playing with the word, can, you know, uh, when might you mimic something? What is the difference between mimicking and imitating? Can you think of a time when you mimicked? Could a, would a tyrant ever mimic? What would happen if you mimicked a tyrant? Uh, you know, lots and lots of wordplay like that. Kids are much more likely to understand the word and its nuance and, nuance and depth. And interestingly, as, uh, uh, as Isabel Beck points out, and she just has an outstanding book on vocabulary called Bringing Words to Life. She says, um, if words overlap in meaning by 80% or 
mimic and imitate, say. We tend to teach them as synonyms. Yeah. But what's important from a reading perspective is the difference in the words. That mimic means to imitate, but in a pejorative sense that you're making fun of someone. And so if you teach those words as synonyms, when you come across them in the reading, you won't get the implication of the text, and it will fail to help you from a reading comprehension perspective. It's fabulous. So boy. I think I think uh, yeah. So it's so it's actually fabulous. the difference. It's the differences are that are more important than the similarities, and that gets to the idea that you know lots of at bats, lots of wordplay, deep knowledge of words is one of the most powerful things we can do for students. So you call it at bats because the way to get become a better hitter is you got to swing the bat about. A thousand times a day, you know. It's people think there's a yeah. lot of subtlety to hitting. I'm, I'm a huge student of hitting, actually, as a former little league teacher and as a baseball fan. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I'm interested in technique generally. Teaching being one example, I, I'm fascinated by yeah. how some things are easy to teach. Uh, others, such as singing, it's not so easy because you can't hmm. really hold your elbow the right way for singing the way you can with a baseball bat. But anyway, it's, right. it's called a bats for that reason, right? That's right. It comes from the experience actually I had that I had coaching. I don't, I don't, I don't know much about baseball, but my first teaching job, I got asked to coach a baseball team. And so I had this, I had this buddy who was an all American in college and he had a friend who was a, who was an outstanding coach. And he, you know, I got half an hour with him over coffee and, uh, to ask him all my questions about coaching baseball. And he cut me off in the middle and said, listen, it's about at bat. Don't get fancy. Don't get cute. <laughs> you know, uh, put the ball right down the plate and have him swing the bat a hundred times at least a day. You know, it has to, just the basic swing has to be intuitive. Do that over and over again. Next question. <laughs> yeah, I and in, in some ways, that's all, you know, that's kind of the inspiration for the idea of, uh, doing something till it's intuitive, till you can do it in your sleep. Not only allows you to do it better, but it frees up your mind to be thinking about something else while you're executing. You can't have insights about, uh, about what you're doing with a math problem if you're churning through the calculations. The calculations have to be have to almost happen by themselves and then you think, oh, you wait, think. there's an easier way to do this. Yeah. yeah, there's a simpler way to do this. Uh, I'll just tell a quick uh, batting story. I took my kids to a batting coach once and they're swinging away and coach is having them work on something and I mentioned to the coach while the lesson's going on, I said, well, can you believe that, that back foot? They're not, they're not squishing the bug. They're not, they're not rotating their hips or something, whatever I was noticing and the coach looked at me and he said, very smart man. He said, uh, "I think it's good to work at one thing on one thing at a time." <laughs> and he was right. You know, I, I saw eight things that yeah. were wrong, and you can't fix eight things. You got it's another. You know, I know you're a big fan of small steps. It's. Uh, I want to talk about one more technique, and then we're going to talk about some general issues. Now, Arnold Kling, who's an educator and author, who's appeared on the program, he's one of his themes about education that education is feedback. It's telling students what they know and don't know, and it's teachers learning what they know and don't know, what their students know and don't know. Talk about what call and response is as a technique mm -hmm. and how it works. And, and, cold sure. call, and cold calling as well. Yeah. Maybe I'll start with, I'll start with cold calling. Because uh, I, 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 to me, cold calling is one of the most powerful techniques uh, you can use to sort of boost the academic rigor of, of a classroom instantly and, and powerfully. And the idea is that cold calling is calling on students regardless of whether they've raised their hand. You know, in most classrooms, a teacher asks a question, and then a bunch of kids raise their hand, and the teacher thinks, who should I call on? Um, but what cold call does is, in, in, and, and then those students answer the question, but cold, call, cold calling makes it so that everyone answers the question, and then you decide who shares the answer. So uh, what it means is I ask a question, what's three times five? Uh, and then I say, you know, Russ. Uh, and if, if, if it's clear that I'm cold calling, if I say something like, okay, I'm going to cold call now, be ready. Three times five is what Russ? Then everyone in the classroom, all 30 students in the classroom have done that problem in their head because they're anticipating that it might be them who gets cold called. And so three things happen. Uh, one, you get great engagement because students are, know they have to be on their toes and be ready to participate and they can't sort of choose to opt out of the, <laughs> of the class for all or part of a lesson because they could be called on at any time. And so they're engaged and they're, they're thinking along and they're doing the cognitive work whether or not they get called on. And number two, it just, it just speeds, can speed up the pacing of the class. You know, I think we've all been in the classroom where the teacher says something like this. Let's see, I'd like to go over number two on the homework. Who'd like to answer number two? I'm seeing the same three hands. 
And everybody really else, like to hear from the, everybody else who doesn't really like get hear, called on checks out. Right. I really like to hear from the boys in the back. Do I need to remind you all that participation is graded in my class? So a couple things happen there. One, yes, a bunch of students tune out. Two, I just wasted 15 seconds pleading with my class to answer a question. And if you multiply that, you know, how many questions get asked over the course of the year, it's actually an incredibly massive amount of time that is wasted pleading with students to participate uh, when you could just say, who'd like to answer? Uh, so let's go over number two on the homework. Ross, what did you get for number two? Right? And it can be, it doesn't have to be a gotcha. It can be better when it's an inv invitation to a real conversation. But then all of a sudden, all that time that I waste and all the energy that gets sucked out of the room by hearing the teacher plead for participation is gone and class is fast and energetic and students are engaged. And the last reason why cold calling is so deeply important is because it allows you to check for understanding. I know that you're, you're a, kind of a sports guy, but uh, you know, the great, great basketball coach, John Wooden, said, uh, it's not whether you taught it, it's whether they learned it. And if you ask me for, you know, when I rewrite Teach Like a Champion, the technique that's going to, I'm going to put first in the book, in the first chapter, and it's going to get its own chapter is check for understanding. On the premise that's of the huge. fundamental, yeah, the fundamental criteria, the fundamental attribute of a great teacher is his or her willingness to see to seek and see the difference between I taught it and they learned it. And so one of the things that I need to be able to do when I've taught something to my students is to be able to say, is to be able to take a sample of the room and see how well they know the material that I just asked them. Great. So let's go over the Stamp Act. Who passed the Stamp Act and when? And what was the reaction in the House of Burgesses? And what did the, what did the governor of Virginia say about that? And how did the rest of the, Amer how did the rest of the American colonies react? And if they can answer those questions, then I have a pretty good sense that they've learned it. But if I only rely on the students who raise their hands to tell me, I'm instantly getting a, statistic, uh, a flawed statistical sample. Because the kids who raise their hands are more likely to know it than the kids who don't raise their hand. And so I have to, to be able to check for understanding reliably, I have to have normalized the experience of my saying, Eric, what do you think? Great. And Stuart, what about you? And Sarah? Uh, and Alice? So that I can call on anyone I want to at any time. Uh, now, to check for their check their knowledge. What does a cold caller do when the student says, "Can you repeat the question?" and then says, "I don't know," and just yeah. opts out opts out anyway? So they're sitting there yeah. looking out the window. You call on them to get their attention, and they're not paying attention. They don't want to. Yeah, it's a great. It's great. So I, I think one of the reasons, uh, one of the keys to doing cold call well is to make is to, you know, uh, engaging students before they get off task. But obviously, this happens. And so one of the techniques I might use there is a technique called no opt-out, which is, let's say I ask you a question. Uh, so, uh, Russ, who passed the, uh, what governing body passed the Stamp Act? I don't and know. You look at me and say, you say, I don't know. I say, great, listen carefully and we'll make sure you get there. Uh, Daphne, what governing body passed the Stamp Act? The Parliament. Great, back to you, Russ. Who passed the Stamp Act? Right. Parliament. And then, uh, right, and then over time you learn that you're not going to save any work for yourself by saying, I don't know, because you're going to answer the question anyway in the end. Uh, and so then over time, hopefully I would say, hmm, maybe instead of having Daphne give you the answer, I might say, Daphne, can you tell, uh, can you tell Russ what governing body did not pass the Stamp Act? And maybe that will help him realize which one That's did. Beautiful. She might say, you know, there's a Continental Congress. It had nothing to do with the Continental Congress. I'd say, great. It was not. Uh, a governing body in the United States. Now, can you tell me who passed the Stamp Act? Yeah, beautiful. And so, uh, and obviously one of the keys to doing this well, one of the other techniques in the book, which is called emotional constancy, which is as soon as I get mad at a student for struggling and being wrong, I do two things. One is I teach that student that they should try to hide their errors from me uh, because I'll get mad at them. And the result is that then it's harder for me to find their errors and it's harder for me to check for understanding and ensure their knowledge. Um, and so I want to avoid that. But the other thing is that when I insert my anger, uh, I, 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 I dilute or I, um, destroy the sense that getting it wrong and getting it right is the normal state of learning. Of course you got it wrong. Of course you struggled. Of course you had, <laughs> if you could answer all the questions, there would be no sense of my asking them of you. And so I want to normalize error and make it safe to be wrong in my classroom. Uh, and so teachers have to do that when they do, you know, with techniques like cold call and, and no opt out. Uh, those, uh, that affective part of the classroom is critical as well. So what is call and response? And, and then we'll so move call on. Call and response. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So call and response, uh, 
we see primarily as an engagement technique, which is I say an answer aloud and I expect the whole class to, to give me a response in chorus. So I might say, uh, let's say I'm reviewing multiplication facts. I might say, let's review some multiplication facts. Uh, three times five class on two, one, two, and you would all say 15. And then I'd say, great. Uh, and then if I multiply that by three, by three more, I should get, and then the whole class would say 45. Great. And this, I, and I divide by nine and I'm left with five. Uh, and the idea is that A, it causes everyone to do the cognitive work as opposed to the one student who I call on. And B, it's sort of high energy, uh, back and forth a little bit like a workout. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so it can be really, you know, I know, I know the principal of a really great school. It's, uh, it's a primary school and he says he wants his teachers to do five call and responses at the, in the first five minutes of a lesson. The students feel like they have a, you know, every student feels like he or she has a back and forth with the teacher and is engaged and is actively participating in the classroom that's also uh, a very they, yeah. it's also a very effective pop quiz because uh, you see a very crude but effective pop quiz you see that 60 percent of the students answered you realize i could maybe i didn't cover that so well or they all hesitate you realize i better go over three more times so i used to yeah. do it all the time teaching microeconomics uh it's one of my favorite techniques i loved it and it does energize yeah. everybody it's a fabulous um it's a fabulous strategy great now, Can I tell you one other great trick for a pop quiz that, I did, that you're saying that just reminded me of that yeah, sure. I saw a teacher do it the other day. So um, it requires multiple choice questions, but multiple choice questions can be rigorous as well. So uh, a teacher that I'm thinking of as a math teacher, and he, he, he calls the game rock, scissors, paper, and he'll give the kids a set of math. But let's say, you know, it'll be, let's say it's a pop quiz on you know, last night's homework. It's five problems. Uh, so he'll have them complete them, and he'll say, okay, number one, rock, scissors, paper. And, and when he says rock, scissors, paper, the kids slap their desk three times, and they hold up one to four fingers, depending on which answer they thought it was to the first question. And so he can instantly scan the room and say, okay, the right answer was four, and 15 kids got four, but 10 kids didn't. And of the 10 kids who got it wrong, you know, eight of them said answer choice number two. So now I know, A, that like I have a problem here in terms of mastery, and B, that there's something about answer choice number two that fooled them. So I'm going to go back and reteach it and take a particular close, particularly close look at answer choice number two and understand why that was so distracting to students. So this idea of just making the, the uh, answer visu uh, visible uh, through you know hand signals is a really effective way to, to gather a ton of data very That's efficiently fun. and very quickly. Yeah, I like yeah. that a lot. Although it when I used to teach that kind of technique, I would often make uh, choice number two deliberately wrong in a way that I thought would fool them so that they could see that they didn't understand it, which is another part of this feedback story, uh, that it's important yeah. that students see what they don't understand, not just, oh, yeah, I understand that. I can move on. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You're going exactly where great teachers go, which is that after you've sort of made made error visible and learned from it then you want to invest in sort of analyzing error. That error is actually one of the most powerful teaching tools. Yeah, and so, fabulous. you know, asking questions like, uh, why would someone have chosen number two? You know, what's the reason? Why is it, you know, what's, what's right about wrong, to, about wrong answer number two that, uh, that fooled you? That fooled you, yeah. Uh, those are all really, yeah, those are really powerful. Why'd questions. you go down that wrong path so far? Didn't yeah, you, exactly. Why didn't you see that it was dangerous, but you didn't? So you got to be, you need a warning sign there. Uh, now, we've had, um, we had David Epstein on this program talking about the role of practice versus genetic ability uh, in sports, yeah. actually. And he his book is partially not totally, but it takes on Malcolm Gladwell's claim that you know with practice, you, you can do anything. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I'm a big fan of practice, but I'm also yeah. aware of the limitations of the human body uh, as yeah. and the human brain. Do you think great teachers can be made – can you take a, yeah. a bad teacher – Teach them the 49 techniques and teach them. And I don't know if we ever covered this, but your point, yeah. I, your first set of workshops didn't work because people didn't practice. We got into practice. But right. so you practice it, you, 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 you make it work for them, you show them how it works, you unleash them back in the classroom. How much improvement you think you can get from a teacher who yeah. starts off lousy and from these kind of techniques? I do emphatically believe that teachers can be trained, that teachers can be taught. And I would just say that, uh, I fear for what it says about our belief in education if we don't think we can train people to be, we can, if we don't think we can teach people to be teachers. That's a good point. We think we can teach people to be economists. We think we can teach people to be accountants. We think we can teach people to be surgeons. We don't think we can teach people to be teachers. 
uh, you know, there's a, there's a deep and disturbing irony to the assumption that teaching is something that cannot be taught. And I, I, I just reject it. Uh, and I think our experience rejects it. I don't think that that implies that every single person can become a great teacher. Um, I think that people who are willing to learn, who have the, who have a mindset of openness, uh, I would say that if we can't make them at least effective teachers and many, many of them really good teachers and make all of them significantly better, then we have to ask ourselves questions about uh, about the training that we offer because it's broken. Do you think it because varies? The first, because the first obligation of an organization is to make its people better. Yeah, uh, totally so agree. I would also, yeah, I mean, I would also, there's a, a difference in some ways, but you know, you mentioned David Epstein's just outstanding book, um, which I love, even though I'm a, I'm a, I'm obsessed with practice. But I think his book is also to some degree about the rarefied, you know, what it takes to be an elite, an elite athlete, to be a world-class sprinter. Um, and so do I know for sure that you could make, uh, you could get every teacher to be the top, you know, one tenth of one percent of teachers? Perhaps not. You know, I think there are things that are, uh, maybe beyond training there. But should we be able to get, you know, 90% of teachers into, into the top two quartile of what we think into what are now the top two quartiles? Absolutely. And I think that's where people maybe misunderstand David's book. I think he I still agree. believes strongly in practice. Absolutely. What he's saying is, you know, when you get to the world of, you know, elite performance now, uh, it's not enough to practice that you have to have, you know, you have to have the right physiology because there's so many people clamoring for those few spots, you know, at the starting blocks. And so you have to uh, have had the foresight to be born with the right physiology. But I think that's sort of a special case of Absolutely. Uh, elite performance. Do you think it varies by field? Do you think it's easier to make a, a great math teacher better, a, a good math teacher a great one, than a good English teacher a great one, a bad math teacher a good one, a bad English teacher a good one? Well, I think it varies, varies by field for sure in that um, I think there are really, really three domains of knowledge that you need to master to be a great teacher. One of them is general teaching techniques. You know, I think that uh, cold call and checking for understanding uh, – you know, are really important for any teacher to know how to do and how to manage a classroom, you know. So when you walk into a classroom full of skeptical 16-year-olds and you say, okay, everyone sit down, please, and the kids say, you sit down. <laughs> you know, if you don't know how to handle that situation, it doesn't matter how much you know about math, you know, you're, you're not going to win. Uh, so one, there's sort of teach, general teaching knowledge that's very powerful. And then there's subject-specific content. You know, if you don't know the math, if you, if you, don't, if you have, don't have deep knowledge about literature and how it works, uh, you're not going to be very successful. And that, that part is very hard to train. You know, in a training setting, you really have to have your content knowledge beforehand. And this is, I would say a uh, significant issue in teacher training is the level of content knowledge people have coming to the field. But then there's a middle group of, of skills, which are sort of content-specific teaching approaches. How do you teach reading? How do you teach math? There are obviously specific things, you know, the science teacher, the history teacher, the music teacher that you do differently. Uh, and so I think there, there are certainly each endeavor in teaching is different in that it requires different skills um, and, 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 you know, and specific knowledge in that area. I'd say they're all uniquely difficult. I, I wouldn't want to opine on which one is most difficult. Uh, I would say that the one that we see the most difference in how we hire for is reading teachers. That, um, you know, uh, each book requires a different act of insightful interpretation. And there's just a level of, of intellect and interpretation that uh, uh, reading teachers tend to be harder. People who are going to be successful as reading teachers tend to be a little bit harder to identify in the selection process than our math teachers, where we feel like we can often, you know, we can find someone relatively reliably through our selection criteria. Uh, well, let me ask you about that because I was going to get to it later. How do you... Yeah. How do you find when you're involved day to day in running a school, you've yep. got these bright eyed, chipper 22 year olds, maybe 24 year olds if they've been to graduate school. Um, they all look pretty similar coming out. Uh, how do you find, how do you decide who the good ones are to at least to get started? Yeah. I mean, over time, it's interesting. Uh, selecting people is so, it becomes such a, a critical area of what we do. 
Um, one of the most important things we do is we ask people to teach. I think that a lot of hiring for, for teaching involves talking to people about teaching. And what you get is people who can talk about teaching and who are articulate and often, uh, you know, can be really reflective and can describe all the nuances and challenges and the perversities and the ambiguities and the paradoxes. And that is very different from being able to get in front of a class and do it. And in fact, an ability to articulate all the paradoxes, you know, and, and ambiguities in some ways probably inversely correlates to your ability and willingness to get up in front of the class and do it. Do it. So the first thing that we figured out was, you know, we should just, we should limit the amount of time we spend talking to them and we should see people teach and ask them to come in and teach a sample lesson to our kids and see how they do. And so that proved to be incredibly revealing. But as someone who's really passionate about feedback, I think you'll appreciate that what we then learned was that even more important than, than watching someone teach was watching them react to feedback after their teaching. So what we do now is we have some, we have people in to teach a sample lesson and then we sit them down afterwards and we give them feedback and we say, you know, or here are a couple of things that we loved in your lesson. We thought were really just great. You know, you handled the situation really well. Loved this question. Super job there. Uh, if you were part of this organization, you know, we think teaching is important enough that we would constantly give you constructive feedback too. Here are two things that we think you could have done differently in the lesson to make it more rigorous. So first, I'm looking for like, how are they reacting to this? Are they writing it down? Are they open-minded about it? Do they ask questions about it? Are they folding their arms and saying, yeah, well, I couldn't really do that right then because, you know, are they defensive about the feedback? Uh, and in the long run, someone who is open to feedback and who comes in, you know, who, who scores a six in skill, but is, is thirsty for feedback and hungry and wants it. Uh, I'm going to hire that person over someone who comes in at an eight or an eight and a half, but who's a little bit defensive and doesn't want to hear someone tell them about their teaching. Because ultimately the six is going to pass the eight pretty quickly, especially if I keep her for five or 10 years, which is what I want to do. You know, And she's going to take other people with her because of her learning modality. But then the most interesting thing we realize is instead of just watching people take feedback and inferring whether we think they're good at it, we should just ask them to come back and reteach. <laughs> Great. When you come back, we'd love to see you implement cold call and see if you can check for understanding more deliberately during the lesson and make sure that you have a really good sense for how students are doing and then tell us afterwards what you thought, what you thought they learned well and what they didn't. And if someone is able to, you know, to teach, to take feedback and to apply it in the next lesson, you know, I'm buying. I just think that that's someone that if we can't put that person to great use changing the lives of students, we're in the wrong, you know, we're, it, it's us who are the problem and not them. Well, that's a tough test, though, given what you said earlier about practice. So many of those teachers, they're brand new. They've never cold called. You're giving them this new technique. They might be excited about it, but they might not know how yeah. to do it. I guess, I guess the best ones would say, how do you do that? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and well, the very best ones are people, are people say, could I practice that right now? Yeah, it's a very high level. <laughs> or we'll suggest it and we'll say, you know, well, why don't you pretend that, you know, be two or three of us in the room. So why don't you pretend that we're your students right now? Why don't you ask us a few questions and pretend to call call? Great. Try it this way. Try it that way. You know, uh, someone who's willing to roll up their sleeves like that, uh, and risk being wrong to be, to be able to get it in the short run, to be able to get it right in the long run. Again, like, I just think that teaching attracts such incredible people who are so, willing to do whatever it takes to change the lives of others who are so altruistic and uh, and inspirational that uh, in some ways what I love about this process is, is it unlocks those people who are just, they're the most important people in our society. You know, democracy is predicated on education. Econo the economic, you know, you're an economist. Uh, the economist Eric Hanischek, uh ran uh -huh. a 40-year analysis. Many-time guest uh, on this program. Oh, great. He's brilliant. Uh, and so he ran a 40-year analysis of test scores and Latin, you know, education test scores in Latin American countries and their GDP growth rates. And uh, and the test scores explain 80% of the GDP growth rates over 40 years. So the people who uh, determine how fast we learn more, how much we develop, how much our brains grow, determine our economic viability not as, not just as individuals but as a nation, and they determine our you know democratic viability. They're the most important people in our culture. Uh, and so I love to find people <laughs> who are great at that work. And that, you know, to me, a process that identifies them is, uh, I just find it incredibly exciting the moment when you realize like you're sitting in the room with someone who's going to be a great teacher and they yeah. don't even know it yet, but you know it's it. exhilarating, yeah. Now, yeah. a lot of people claim when confronted with various ideas for improving schools or changing school systems that, uh, 
there's no really good metric for what determines a good teacher. We understand that test scores alone aren't valuable because some people get the good students, et cetera. There's right. all kinds of other variables. And so people say, well, you know, can't really – we don't know who the good teachers are. And so it's not fair, say, to have merit pay right. or whatever other – or principal shouldn't have a lot of power because they can they can do arbitrary things. My mm-hmm. I feel very differently. Um, mm-hmm. I know in my kids' school all the good teachers and all the bad ones – and in particular, yep. I know which ones are good for me, for my kids. Now, it may be mm-hmm. that someone else disagrees with me because they have different – their kids need to have different needs. That's totally understandable. But the idea that right. somehow it's just a black box and uh, and I'm asking that because you describe – and I, I love this. You describe teaching as a craft, and mm-hmm. craft by definition is not science. Uh, there are maybe techniques and practice things that make you better, but as we've already said, some people are gifted in certain ways and – their sensitivity to what's going on in the room in a way that other people can't, and they'll never implement the technique the same way other people do. It'll always be better, always worse. So in any school, there are differences across in performance across those teachers. Do you think the teachers – and excuse me, do you think the administrators in a good school know who the good teachers are? Well, the answer to that question is, uh, is to me is yes. There's data out there. It's interesting. I think it's the classic case of misapplied data. Invariably, once a year, someone quotes me data that says, well, the average principal, it turns out, is not a very good judge of, of a good teacher. And if you ask the average principal to correlate, you know, uh, their own perception of teacher effectiveness to value-added gains or, you know, some strong, reliable measure of, of data, they're not very good. And that may be, tr- you know, that may be true. I'm a little bit suspicious of that because usually people who make that argument are actually, <laughs> they don't want to use the test either as an objective measure. So I don't know what they're measuring against. But what that does not mean, I, mean, I think what that does not mean is that excellent principals are not good judges exactly. of, of teachers. And in fact, uh, you know, excellent principals, strong principals are great judges of teacher quality. Uh, and this is proven in the data. And in fact, this is the definition <laughs> of a great principal is someone who's a, someone who understands what good teaching is and can identify it and can support it. And so to me, it only underscores a couple of things. It underscores the incredible importance of school leadership and how school leadership, we have to, you know, autonomy and accountability have to live together in an organization. And we have to free our school leaders to make real decisions so that they can, you know, they can really influence what happens in their schools and hold them accountable for it. And that, you know, I believe passionately in educational data. I think it has flaws for sure. It will only get better by our using it. But I think where it's most powerful is as an organizational management tool. So when I see a school district, you know, or a state publish its teachers' test scores in the newspaper, I just think that's wrong. I just think that's wrong. <laughs> One, because it's just not the way to treat people. But two, I think that educational data is really powerful in the hands of good managers. And so a good principal who's accountable for who's accountable for test scores at the school level can take the scores of individual teachers and say, aha, I have a, I have a hypothesis from looking at this, these test scores that this teacher is struggling in math. And I've seen her teach, and it's borne out by what I've seen her teaching. Uh, and, uh, and I think that I can, you know, now I think I know what to do to fix it. Or, you know, or I think it was a one-year thing. I think this class just got the better of her. I've seen it born out over multiple years. You know, it's a management tool to be used by a manager to, uh, to drive organizational results as opposed to, you know, the, the point of accountability should be the school. Uh, and then the manager of the school should have the flexibility to hold individual teachers accountable. And that doesn't necessarily mean that teach, you know, it means there would have to be differences in rules about how teachers could be uh, assessed, prom- promoted, and developed and assessed. And just as important as having the conversation about shaking hands with the teacher and saying, you know, uh, I'm so glad that you want to teach, but it's, you know, but your results aren't good enough for the kid for the kids who get one chance to learn. And so I'm going to have to ask you to go back to training or to work somewhere else because you can't work here. Like that is a conversation that I've had with people. It is not pleasant, but it has to be done. And teaching is such hard work and such hard intellectual work that it's folly to assume that that conversation doesn't have to happen and that you can protect all jobs equally. So but just as important as that, just as important as that is the conversation with the great teacher where I say like, I have, you know, I've always known that you're great uh, and I watch you teach and you inspire me. And now I have the data to show how much you change kids' lives. 
and I want to talk to you about how to make your influence better, and I want to reward you in every way that I can think of. I want you to tell me the things that would make you happy professionally, the opportunities you want, so I can make you love this work and do it forever. We also fail in that conversation. We fail in that conversation worse than we fail in the dismissal conversation, and it's more important because more, more, more desperately sad than uh, losing out on great people who don't enter the teaching profession because the labor dynamics of it are dysfunctional are all the great people who leave the profession because they will never be differentiated from their least competent peer. Couldn't agree with you more. Now, when you wrote Teach Like a Champion, it was uh, came out in 2010, at least the paperback that I have, and it says there were 10 uncommon schools, this chain of charter schools you're involved in. Uh, they're yeah. now, I think, 32. Is that correct? Uh, I think we're up at 38 this year, believe Great. it or not. Uh, so my yeah. question is, following up on what we're talking about with teachers, uh, how do you evaluate teachers? Is it a formal process? Do you give yeah. – what kind of feedback do you give your staff – because my yeah. impression is in a lot of schools, and this is universities through uh, K through 12, there's not a lot of evaluation. They, because people say we can't really yeah. evaluate. It can't really be, you know. Right. There's a, and, and there are several forms of evaluation. I mean, I'd say the first thing that has to happen is, you know, uh, our first obligation is to make people better. And so when we, like, you know, one of our rules of thumb is every teacher should be observed at least every three weeks. If it's for 10 minutes, that's fine. But if I'm really seeking to understand a teacher, I'm going to have to see them in their classroom. And I'm going to have to, I'm not going to be able to see them on the, you know, like the dog and pony show when they know I'm coming on March 3rd. It's better for them and better for me if I see a wide array of, you know, statistical data points on what happens. And, you know, I need to understand what's typical in their classroom. So I need to be in there constantly. And my focus to be in their classroom needs to be my goal for being in here is to make you better. And at some point, yeah, we have a conversation about, you know, whether you're doing the job well enough. But I want 90%. I want my teachers to be happy when my principals walk in the classroom because they know they're going to get helped. When Teach Like a Champ, when the, there's, right before Teach Like a Champion came out, there's an article in the New York Times magazine about the book. And there's a picture, uh, in which I was standing in the back of a classroom taking notes on a teacher. And someone wrote on a comment like, Clearly, this guy doesn't know anything about running schools because, you know, how humiliating for the teacher to have someone, you know, evaluating her and, and, you know, making notes on her in the back of the classroom, you know, while she's teaching, like it must make her incredibly stressed. But in fact, the teacher who's in the classroom is a teacher named Katie Bellucci, who's, uh, who's since become, you know, one of our top teachers and a senior teacher in the school. She's happy to have me in the classroom because we had a great working relationship and she knew that my purpose for being there was to help her make the most of her incredible skills and to become a great teacher, which she really has become. I just think it's a sad and cynical view of the profession <laughs> to see That's such right. a divide between administration and teaching. Uh, and so uh, so I, I think that the first thing that has to happen with evaluation is it has to be done in the spirit of like my goal, my goal is to make you better. Now, then in Uncommon Schools, do we go the next step? Yeah, of course. There's a mid-year performance review and an end-of-the-year performance review for every teacher. It's not based on a single observation, though. Ideally, it's based on, you know, dozens and dozens of observations, not only of your classroom, but of the work that students do that comes out of your classroom. I look at your lesson plans. I look at, uh, I look at, uh, interval test data. I look at, you know, I look at the tests that you write and the quality of what students do in your classroom. Talk to your department chair. Uh, and so then we have a conversation and, you know, uh, the principals of uncommon schools are great principals and they're really good judges of good teaching. And yes, Ben, they also use objective data like state test scores. Uh, but, uh, you know, so the, there is, you know, evaluation at some point, but it comes long after a long-standing conversation about let me help you to become the best teacher that you can be. And so even that conversation hopefully is grounded in a foundation of trust. And if it comes down to, you know, you've worked so hard and I'm grateful for how hard you've worked, or I've asked you to work hard and to be honest, you have not been willing to put in that work. And I understand why, and I understand why there are a hundred distractions, but I have to tell you that, you know, uh, that this is not the school for you, which happens very rarely. Like, you know, that, that can, that conversation can still happen built on a foundation of trust. But I really believe the, um, McKinsey study, which said one of the great quotes from the McKinsey study of the best school systems in the world said, the quality of a school or a school system can never exceed the quality of its teachers. So I think, the, I think you know, uh, we're only going to be good 
if our teachers love working for us, if they feel so trusted, if they feel safe, if they feel like they're never going to be, you know, done an injustice by the evaluation system, if it's based on complete trust and the notion that it's about making them better, and if that doesn't happen in an organization, you're dead. So we had uh, recently had Lance Pritchett on as a guest talking at, about his book, uh, The Rebirth of Education. And one of the themes of that book is that the trappings of a great school do not make a great school. There has to be something living, beating at the heart of it. There's something mm-hmm. systemic and organic about a great school. So you, you can have the all the best smart boards and all the best student-teacher ratio right. that all – you can mimic Finland, which everybody uh, – and I should have said imitate. <clears throat> you can imitate Finland. Right. <laughs> you can imitate – Or mimic them, frankly. <laughs> yeah, well, probably. So we can do what Finland's doing, and, and of course, mm-hmm. in – a horrible school system that imitates what Finland's doing will get a, will remain a horrible school system. It'll just have a high student-teacher ratio or whatever Finland's doing that's right. been successful. So I'm curious. I'm thinking about the scatter plot we talked about. We've got a school in the upper right corner, meaning high poverty and high achievement, which is an outlier, but it exists. And it's not a, a literal outlier. It's not like there's one school that's managed to do it. There are dozens. Unfortunately, there's hundreds that are down at the bottom, but there's dozens that are doing it beautifully well. There's something systemic going on there. It's not just, I assume, that those schools have teachers that have mastered the best techniques. Some, what, right. I'm going to, what I'm going to suggest, especially after what you just said, is that those schools have found a way to motivate or at least to attract teachers who are motivated because teaching, despite what everyone believes, is hard work. It's not something yeah. you can just do on the side. And as you said, it's a performance profession. So if you think you can stand up there in front of those skeptical 16-year-olds and go through the motions, you're going to get kicked. And unfortunately, yeah. avoiding going through the motions means working. It means preparing. It means it means practicing and drilling the things you need to be doing. It means contact with students outside of class in all kinds of ways. Why it are some schools – caring and respecting you, caring about you and respecting you enough to say, look – I know that lesson was not the best work that you can do. Yeah. So and why I is it? I help you to do the best work that you can do every day. So why is it that some schools, not teachers, right? We've been talking about what makes a great teacher. What makes a great school? I think this is so. I think that you're spot on that it's not just, a, you know, a school is greater than the sum of its, te- of its teachers. And in fact, you know, a great school is an organization that makes people better. We talk about this a lot because we try and you know, we try and recruit great teachers. But in the end, if if I do what you said, which is I attract a, I attract great teachers to my school, in the big picture, that's that's a pyrrhic victory. You know, uh, there's an amazing teacher across the city. She teaches 30 kids in her classroom. I convince her to come to my school. She teaches my 30 kids. Uh, her results are outstanding. It's just 30 kids. Just a question of which 30 kids, but it's just 30 kids who are getting stronger. Uh, question is, does my organization make her better so that her, those 30 kids get even better and so that she rubs off on other people and so that 30 kids in someone else's classroom are better because she's there? And so I think that this it boils down to culture among the adults, an environment of you know, team spirit that we are about excellence and we're going to do this together. We're going to build each other up and there's going to be a culture of candor in doing it, but we're going to build each other up. And it's about it's about training. It's about skills. I think that people like to win. They like to be a part of organizations that they know make them better, where at the end of the day, who wants, who wants to commit their lives to doing hard work when at the end of the day they're not sure that they won? Everyone wants to play for the Yankees. Everyone wants to play. You know, If you're a soccer player, you want to play in the Champions League because you want to feel like you want to be able to look back and know that you won. And so I think that schools are successful because they make people, in the end, they respect people. They honor them for their skills, and they make people better. And if you're better at making people better, you're on your way to building a culture where people feel trust and appreciation. And they don't mind working hard because what greater gift is there to work hard for something you believe in? And yet, despite that, it's a lovely thought. Our school system, America, doesn't generally reliably create those schools. And I would suggest there's something – not so healthy with our system. You've made a decision, and I yeah. honor it. I have tremendous respect for it. You're working through the charter school system. It's You're making, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect you're making a, a big difference in 30 times 
20 times 20 times 38, whatever it is, schools that you're involved in, um, it's kind of a – it's a desperate, somewhat poignant attempt to uh, make an end around a system that's dysfunctional. And, and I'll say why it's dysfunctional. It's dysfunctional because you know, we, Lance Pritchett talked about the, uh, the, the parent who stood before his uh, village having heard that his, student, his kids had learned nothing in five years, not just mm-hmm. disappointing test scores. They couldn't read and they couldn't do simple math problems. They had learned nothing. And that, that teacher, the headmaster of that school said, well, that's because you're stupid, you know. What, what do you expect? Right. This poor man right. said, you know, I, I'm a, my life's been a donkey's life. I wanted my kids to have something different. I trusted you, and you betrayed me. And this headmaster laughed at him, basically, and, and, and gets away with it. And yeah. we don't have that level of dysfunctionality in the United States, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, we have a lot of schools where parents don't have choices because they don't have the money to send their kids to private schools. They can't right. afford to move out into a good neighborhood. They're stuck in that lousy neighborhood. Right. We have this bizarre right. system. Well, people who say that we don't have school choice in this country don't uh, don't know anything about real estate prices. <laughs> right. Well, that's the problem. We don't have we have something like school choice, but it's not it's very expensive, and people have who who are of limited means can't make those choices that other people can. Those people have great schools, as Lance Pritchard also talked about. Right. You right. live in a wealthy suburb in America. You have good schools, partly, I believe, because the parents can send their kids to a private school, so they have to so compete. I would say- Though I would also say that, like, I would say one of the dirty little secrets of American education is that uh, what they have is schools that have tremendous selection effects. I don't Correct. always know that our schools are that are even our elite. I mean, I had a funder who uh, funds my work to training teachers, and you know, my passion is inner city work. And he said, "I get that your passion is inner city work, and you can relax because I'm going to fund you." But here's the one thing I ask of you: the dirty little secret of American education is that our middle class and our upper middle class schools. Are terrible, and they're going to get their they're going to get their lunch eaten by Singapore and China, and India, and parts of Europe, and they don't even realize it because they have a selection effect. And so, I want you to do at least one set of trainings for a suburban school somewhere to see if it works. To see if it works, because that's the thing that I I care about. I don't care about the inner city. He said to me, I care about you know the suburban and upper you know the, the upper the middle class upper middle class suburban schools that so are the, called gifted you know, the engine of the current of the current economy you know this is the place that's going to drive our current economy the so-called talented kids are not talented enough and it's going to be the death of the american economy and i have to say i thought about that long and hard after i walked out of that meeting with him you know, well i don't think it's going to scary and uh, i don't, I don't think, i'm not that pessimistic i don't think it's the death of the american economy what i do think is that we have uh we've shortchanged yeah, a lot of people you know, his, his, his words not mine but but yeah. i think it's you know, is look. There's there's an achievement gap everywhere. Yeah, there is definitely a rich poor achievement gap. There's an achievement gap between what our schools are and what they could be. There's you know, I have three kids. You know, there's a there's a really big gap between what the, the schools they go to, uh, the schools that would be the equivalent to what they deserve and and you know and what uh, what they are. You know, anywhere there's a gap between us and the best schools in the world. Uh, the benefit that we have in inner city schools is that generally people get the urgency. I think in suburban schools, people are, are, are often pretty insulated from the urgency. One of the best suburban principals I know uh, started working with her teachers on a bunch of really great stuff. And her biggest struggle was that the, she just said they wanted to say to her, you know, just leave me alone. Um, we're fine. Can't you see this? Can't you see the scores? We're great. We're, you know, fill in the name of, fill in the name of the school district here. Why are you doing this? You know, why are you trying to become excellent? <laughs> and those kids are getting SAT tutoring, and that's what part of the reason their scores are so right. high. It's there's a lot of missed right. opportunity, and the incentives I believe in our current school system are not conducive to excellence, and it's a tragedy. Um, let's talk about econ talk, if we could. Um, this is an entertainment and educational program. I always say it's both. If it's not educational, I don't want to be involved in it. If it's only um, education, it's it's not going to get as many listeners as, as it would as as it would if it is entertaining. You're uh, not going to ask me to sing, are you? No, absolutely not. But you could be you could be juggling while we're talking in the background, and, and there's no harm in claiming it because it's not verifiable. What I'm thinking about in reading your book and talking to you today. And getting ready for this interview made me wonder. I've got this is a this is a nice podcast. People like it. They send me nice emails. They say they 
you out there, you say you've learned things from this, um, which touches me deeply. I bet you could learn a lot more. I bet I could structure this program in ways that would help you learn more. I bet I could do things outside of the hour-long interview that would help you learn more. Now, some of you out there do an amazing thing. You listen to the, each episode more than once or special episodes more than once. Some tell me, some of you tell me you listen to them four and five times. Um, that's one way to get more out of it. It's impressive. It touches me again. But I bet there's some simpler, less time-consuming ways I can make it better. And I'm curious if you've thought about not econ talk per se, but audio, conversation as a way of learning and what perhaps might be done on the internet that would improve these kind of educational opportunities. Hmm, that's a fascinating question. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, not wanting to sort of, uh, this is a little bit outside my area of expertise uh, and didn't, didn't have a lot of time to, pre- didn't uh, prepare for the question. But I, one thing that I think I feel really passionately about, uh, two things. One is writing, that I don't think you really understand something until you have gone through the process of disciplining it into idea, into words. You know, you have a professor of mine in college describe the difference between a notion and an idea, and he said a notion was half an idea, but when you've put it into specific words and into syntax and and uh, and been disciplined about saying what it is and what it isn't, when you've written it down in, in paper, then it becomes an idea. And so the first thing I would want to think about would be giving people the opportunity to process in writing. I think it's one of the forms of rigor that we miss most in our classrooms, you know, in the in the U.S. generally, that if every class ended with students writing one uh, carefully crafted sentence, capturing the complexity, one of the most challenging ideas from that hour's instruction, uh, education would be much more rigorous. And so I guess I would ask, is there a way for your listeners to write uh, in response to uh, in response to the program to process what they've taken away from the, from the program. Uh, and of course, there are all sorts of electronic tools now that you could use to uh, to gather data from that and give people feedback on on their writing. Uh, the best people, the people that I know who do the best work around you know MOOCs and online modules and online training are really good about making it constantly interactive. And making it come down to a lot of a lot of writing, uh, and so that would be at least the place where I'd start looking. I don't think you know it until you can put it in writing. It's a great idea. I'm going to think about that. As I found out every time, every time I tried to write a paper in college, right? I thought I understood the <laughs> I tra- thought I understood the play until I had to write about it. It also helps you uh, remember it. My last question: um, You're doing some amazing things. You're growing. Your uncommon schools is we're up to 38. I'd love for you to have 250. Um, are you a voice in the dark? Do you feel you're part of something that's changing, or is it? Are you just influencing the the people who are right around you? Are you optimistic for the future? Yeah. I'm really, really optimistic. I mean, I go back to my observations about the incredible people who become teachers in this country. You know, they're not going to be paid well. You know, they're not going to get the respect they deserve for their work often, and yet they do it anyway. I think the thing that surprised me most about writing "Teach Like a Champion" is how open uh, people have been to working with, with me and with my team and how much they've really reached out and wanted to learn, wanted, and wanted to engage us. Uh, and I'm talking about schools way outside the charter sector and often outside the urban school sector, but you know, school districts of every stripe and variety around the country, school districts around the world, uh, uh, and schools and school systems have reached out and said, you know, could we talk to you about this? Could we come to one of your workshops? Would you do a training for us? I'm just humbled by the, by the willingness of people to hear me out. People who have every incentive to say, oh, that guy, you know, he's a part of that vast conspiracy. He's a part of charter schools. He's a part of, you know, uh, but generally people in education do not, you might think that they would think that way, but the great majority of them don't. There are, you know, I think there are a few loud voices that are full of invective, but for the most part, people in the teaching profession, the education profession want to make schools better and they're willing to look at any tools that they think can get them there. Uh, no matter where they come from. My colleague Paul Bambrick says that um, buy-in is an outcome, not a precondition. That if training is good, people will come to believe in it. But of course, people walk into the you know, relationship with you sometimes with their arms you know, metaphorically folded because they've been there before. But if your work is really good, that they will open their arms and they will 
then we'll give it a try. And, you know, we found that pretty consistently. So, you know, our work, our, the workshops that we do, a lot of them are with, uh, are outside the charter school sector. And people have been really receptive and we've learned a ton from watching them use the techniques. And that's a lot of what's in Teach Like a Champion 2.0 is what we've learned from people using it. So, I'm um, actually, I'm just, I'm very optimistic about the people in the teaching profession. Uh, and I look forward to the day when, uh, there's more autonomy for them. Uh, I think autonomy comes with accountability, uh, and there are more ways to honor them for the work that they do. My guest today has been Doug Lamov. He is the author of Teach Like a Champion and Practice Perfect. Doug, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.